in the mid-1940s in a crowded assembly hall in Romania. The reach of the newly empowered Communist Party for Romania was taking hold and being realized, especially among the churches. As one pastor after another took to a podium in the front of the room, pledging the allegiance of himself and his church to the Communist Party, an act that was done purely out of self-preservation and fear and pressure. They had to do this to keep on living with any semblance of freedom. And this was very unsettling to a pastor in the room by the name of Richard Wormbrand, who saw the everlasting impact of what was happening. And as he and his wife sat and discussed what was happening, it it came about his turn to go up to the podium and state where his allegiances lie. And he told his wife, if I speak my convictions, if I speak our convictions, I will be a dead man. And she replied that she would rather be married to a dead man than a coward. Richard went on to the podium and stood for God's truth. And then he went on to suffer imprisonments and beatings and torture. And eventually started an organization we call Voice of the Martyrs. Do you ever feel pressure to compromise your faith in order to have a desired status, whether that's social or employment? Do you you ever feel pressure from our culture, our movies, television, talk show, news, social media, whatever it is, to accept as fine and dandy what the Bible says is wrong? Do you feel that you would be completely alone if you did so? If you called what culture says is fine, if you called that wrong? There is a growing pressure to uphold an individual's truth, their truth, more than you would the truth of there being one truth from a Creator God and one Savior. There is... The, the pressure we have, make no mistake, is, is very, very different uh, than what Pastor Richard Wormbrand faced. There, and there's a chasm of difference between what we face walking into a store or a restaurant or our employment or our classrooms. It, it's, it's very different than what Wormbrand faced. Uh, we don't have imprisonment and torture ahead of us if we say things are wrong or we say there's only one Savior. But there is a, a question raised, and there's a similarity in it, that as, as biblical Christianity becomes less popular, how will we respond? Will we be overwhelmed by the pressure uh, in whatever form it takes to concede, or will we look to heaven and walk 
with the confidence that comes from having our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The difference is not bravery. The difference is mindset. It's not that Pastor Richard was more brave than any of the other pastors who pledged their allegiance to communism. It's that he had a different mindset. It's not that he wasn't afraid at all. It's that he was afraid of the right one. He was afraid of God, not of any earthly threat that there could be. And as believers, we need to take seriously the words of Jesus, who said, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the flesh, but be afraid of the one who can destroy the soul. And one of the challenges for us as we think about having the right mindset is is our mindset, is our gaze fixed on the earth, fixed on what's temporary, or is it fixed on the eternal things? And over the course of this year, and probably next year, and possibly the year after that, we are going to be looking at, in various ways, being eternally minded. And we're going to, my hope is to do this long enough that you think Chuck has been talking about eternity forever. And, and it's going to take on different forms. We're going to be talking about eternal habits. Eternal habits like prayer. Eternal habits uh, that deal with our finances. Eternal habits such as evangelism and reading the Word. We're going to be taking these eternal habits to task. We want to consume our lives and our days with things that aren't over tomorrow or things that aren't over in 360 some odd days when we throw out this year's calendar and get next year's. We want to consume ourselves with habits that will last past the millennia. We'll look at passages in Scripture where this year we'll be moving in, in different chunks. We'll move through the book of Philippians. And what does it mean that our citizenship is in heaven and not here on earth? But for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about being eternally minded. That our lives on earth happen in terms of a kingdom of God agenda. And some of this flows out of a retreat that uh, Dave Austin and Josh and I took last fall, that we desire that our church have an eternal mindset regarding our finances, our bodies, our friends, and our goals. We keep our focus on the important things, the things that will last. That we would not be overcome by social pressures, but rest securely in our God and what His Word leads us to. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we need Your help in this. Our eyes see the physical so much easier than they see the spiritual. And so, Lord, we need You to give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that understand. Lord, this is only a work that You can do. And so, Lord, I pray that You would soften us to eternal things. I pray that we would not bow to the pressure of the culture of the world, but we would bow 
to our King Jesus. And we would see your power first and foremost. Lord, would you make us eternally minded. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as eternally minded followers of Jesus, this is the statement for today and we're going to break it down. As eternally minded followers of Jesus, we don't measure personal resources in the midst of difficulty, but we look to God's power and heavenly methodology. This morning where we're going to be at is we're in 2 Kings 6. I invite you to open there. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself more than once or twice. In the mind of the king of and the mind of the king of, of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants uh, and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He felt like he had a snitch. And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, the army with the horses and the chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes, opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, in the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, Oh, this is not the way, this is not the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you, whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Lord said, uh, Elisha said, Oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see so the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat, drink, and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them on their way, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. I think this is one of the funniest stories in all of Second Kings. One of, not the, the funniest, might be a few chapters before. 
but it, but it paints a picture for us of looking heavenward instead of earth, earthly. And so the first thing we see here is people looking at their personal resources. They're looking earthward. In verses 8 to 14, or well, really 8 to 15, we have um, two guys looking earthward. And the first is the king, the king of Syria. And his, his story is a bit, of a, it's a bit of a comedy of errors here. He has a lot of power, but he's unable to do anything. So the, the, the passage opens up and he says, all right, we're going to go war against Israel. We're going to go to this place. The prophet warns the king of Israel. The king of Israel does not go there. So, so the king of Syria finds himself on a bit of a, a, a snipe hunt, if you will. There's just nothing there to be had. This happens regularly. So he searches out who's, who's the mole in our group, who in our ranks is telling the king of Israel what we're doing because he's, he just evades us at every turn. You don't have a mole. The king has a prophet. He tells you every single thing you say. So the king has a problem. And he answers the problem with his own pride and with his own strength. And he, and there's, He sees there's a prophet of God. And I'm going to raise that prophet of God a very large army. And he goes all in on this large army. He feels that his army is greater than what God has to do, than, than the power of God. I, I like the phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and I don't like it at the same time. There can be a lot of self-empowering that comes with it, but with that self-empowering can come a lot of pride. And, and our pride might not surpass that of the king of Syria, but our pride is a problem, and it has the same effects as what his did. And what that does is it blinds us, and it says to God, I can do it myself. And what he said is, I have a problem with the prophet, I have a problem with the king, and I'm going to take care of it myself, and I'm going to go teach them a lesson with my army. I don't need anyone else. I can do this on my own. Solomon warns us about pride. He says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Pride goes before destruction. One's pride will bring him low. Pride leads us to believe things that aren't true about our problems, that we are always in the right, that the solution comes from us and our own abilities, that we can do it on our own. And in the case of the king of Syria, he thought too much of his own resources and not enough of God. His pride and ability blinded him from seeing that he was in the wrong. It blinded him from the miracle that was taking place that Elisha could be in a whole other city and tell the king everything that they were planning because of the power of God. And it robbed the king of Syria an opportunity to worship God. It robbed him the opportunity of saying, there's a prophet in Israel, the mighty God of Israel is protecting them, and so I'm going to submit to that. It robbed him of that. His pride instead led him into his own folly. And it separated him from God and God's will. We should be very careful not to think more of what God has given us than we think of God himself. The king of Syria was king of Syria because God let him be. 
The king of Syria had an army because God let him have an army. And he thought more of that army than he thought of God himself. So we have the king saying, I'm stronger than God. And then we have the servant who says, God is not strong enough. This young assistant, he's potentially the replacement to Gehazi who, who uh, got leprosy in chapter 5 of 2 Kings. A passage we'll look at at length later in the year. He's inexperienced. He's not accustomed to trusting the Lord. And all he sees is the might of the king's army and his own limits. And looking at his personal resources, he has the opposite reaction of the king of Syria. King of Syria looks at his own resources and says, I got this. The king of, or the, the servant of Elisha looks at his own resources and says, this fight is going to be really short and not in a good way. And while his emotion and his words are different, he makes the same essential mistake as the king, and that is that the physical strength of those around me is greater than the power of God. And the opening to this story provides a two-way caution for us. There's a lot of pressure in our world for us to believe false things, that every path leads to eternity that each person's individual own truth is truth and good enough for them. And so who am I to speak my truth into their truth? There's pressure to do wrong things. Sin is so available. The internet's right there. No one will know what I watch on my own Netflix account. It's legal in Illinois, and there's pressure to accept false things. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. The Bible is outdated and wasn't written for today's culture. Instead of realizing all flesh is like grass, but the Word of God stands forever, so maybe we should look at what's permanent and not what's temporary The servant and the king, have the, they both assume that the pressure of the worldly power, whether it's political or cultural, physical strength, will win the day over God. And one assumes his strength is too much for the people of God and God himself. The second assumes that God is not powerful enough to deliver. In a public opinion poll, there are a lot of things that God calls sin that the vast majority of our culture deems as okay. And some who call themselves churches have succumbed to that pressure and gone lockstep with culture. And they've conformed the word of God to the culture instead of saying that the word of God has authority. But the thing is, we do not live in a moral democracy, but we live under a king who has a kingdom. And we need to abide by the rules of the king. We are not told to conform God's word to the cultural standards, but by his word, we will be judged. The Bible's hard to read. There's a lot of times we read it and we think, boy, this just doesn't jive with me. I don't get it. And so we dig deep and we find out what it means. And then we conform ourselves to it. I encourage you this year, read the Bible in its entirety. Find a plan, chronological or otherwise. Find a plan that works for you. Try to read the Bible entirely this year. See where that leads you. What do you learn about God? 
How does that cause you to evaluate what you see? So they were looking earthly. But when we have this call to look at God's power, and God's power comes in remarkably clear, and we see that through the prophet. I like to imagine, and this is purely me imagining, it's not in the text, but I like to imagine this scene unfolded like this. The servant is outside screaming, Oh, Elisha, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? He sounded a little bit like Mickey Mouse. Had, had like noodly arms. Maybe running in circles. Elisha comes out in his robe, cup of coffee. That's no problem. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. God, would you open his eyes? I, I just like to imagine the most nonchalant Elisha. Like, why are you bothering? I mean, this is the guy that used two she-bears to tell 42 kids his hair was fine. Like, just a couple chapters earlier. Like, Elisha, I just imagine him completely unflappable at this moment. Open his eyes. And then the power of God is seen clearly by the servant. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And we need to hear this, believers, that the host of heaven is following God. And as the servant's eyes are open and he sees, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. At that moment, the, the servant who is running around like Mickey Mouse with noodly arms, is now standing strong. Hey, I think we got this. I think we got this. So many times we look in the wrong place. And we have eternal tasks before us. In whatever area of life it is, whether it's your personal life, whether it's your job, whether it's how you're raising your kids, whether it's what you're being told in the classroom or in the office, that we filter that through Scripture. We view it with the range of eternity in mind. And we feel this pressure. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. I've heard of high school students writing papers that articulate their beliefs and their teachers in their public schools saying, you're the only one who thinks this. Maybe you should give it up. You're not the only one. Look in the right place at the hosts of heaven Look with eternity in mind that one day there will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation praising the name of Jesus. Bowing down, saying, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That's the right side of history. Elisha knows the situation, and so he prays. But he prays not first for himself. He's not like, oh man, that, this doesn't look good. God, I need your help here. He prays first for his servant because the servant needs to see what's going on just like we need to see what's going on. The important thing, it's really interesting here, that the Syrian army, they don't see the host of heaven on the hills with chariots of fire. The servant does. 
Because the enemy doesn't need to see God's power. God's people need to see his power. And so then the army starts closing in, and Elisha goes to a second prayer request. God, would you cause them to be blind? And they are. Spurgeon says of this verse that when their blindness astonishes us, it should drive us to our knees. Let's not be amazed that they're blind. Let's be amazed that God in heaven listens to his people. Prayer is how we reorient our gaze from the problem at hand to the one who can actually do something about it. As you can tell, uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of New Year's resolutions all the time, but I am a big fan of the reflection and the growth uh, that can happen as we recognize the turning of a calendar. The, uh, and, the, and there's opportunity for both right now as we enter 2020. And so what I want to ask is how can you grow in prayer this year and this decade? Next January, how can you be a year deeper into prayer than you are now? And I, I have a friend that I study scripture with, and, and, and one thing he's challenged me to that I want to challenge you to is would you consider scheduling time to pray and fast at some point in January, seeking what God wants to do with you in 2020? Would you take this as an opportunity to pull aside extra time to seek out God? To see what He wants. To see where He will lead. To see how you need to follow Him. So we have the prophet sees the power of God. And then we have the army. And in their blindness, they see the power of God. They were blinded by their pride, their strength. They were blinded by the power of God. They were in sin, and their sin led to blindness. You know, it's really interesting. In Genesis 3, when Satan came to Adam and Eve, he offered to give them better sight. Eat of the fruit, and your eyes will be opened. And it led to their blindness. God is sovereign, even over blindness. And their blindness is so great that it, it seems to affect more than their eyes as the greatest scene of irony unfolds in this story. Here they come on a one-man manhunt, a whole army set on killing one guy. They go blind. That guy comes out and goes, honest mistake, guys, you're in the wrong city. Let Follow me and I'll take you to where you need to go. Our sin blinds us so greatly from God. And even as believers, if we start following into sin, if we start walking into sin, we will blind ourselves. And we'll be like this army, unable to see the power of God. They couldn't see that it was the prophet leading them. I mean, they were blind, but you get that many swords going and someone's going to get cut, right? Like, but the guy they're going after leads them. At the end of this, they get sent back to the king of Syria. How do you think that went? Well, did you get the prophet? Not exactly. Did you find him? Kind of. See, he blinded us. Then he led us 
to the king of Syria. Then he let us see again, and we ate and ran. I don't think that was a favorable report. Our sin will blind us. But it's interesting that one guy here captured this whole army. God uses what seems foolish to shame the wise of the world and what seems weak to shame the strong. Here, God in His power uses the man that was the target of this army to lead them into captivity. Whatever you're facing, God is more. He's more powerful. He's more able. He's more loving. He's more just. He's more merciful. Whatever you're facing, God is more. And as you walk with him, it changes you and it impacts how you handle things. So we have the, um, as Elisha then brings them, we see not only is he relying on God's power, but he acts in a heavenly methodology. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes. They saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? At this point in history, Israel did not have good kings. After Solomon, Israel no longer had good kings. God is still watching over him. God is still protecting him. He's not a good dude. He might be slightly better than the last king, but he's still not a good king. And so it's interesting, Elisha's been helping him hide from Syria. And now he has this army. He's like, oh, can I get him? Can I get him now? He's jumping at this. Notice he asks twice, should I strike them down? Should I strike them down? He wants to do this. Oh, I'm a king. Let me have this great victory. What an opportunity to win decisively. Look at this open door before me. Just because there's an open door doesn't mean we should walk through it. And just because there's a closed door doesn't mean we should stop asking God. The king wanted to act in a political methodology, in an earthly methodology, for a quick victory over the, over the enemy. He was acting in a worldly way. Last spring, Pastor Josh and I were able to take a group to Guatemala. Uh, and we were in touristy parts of Guatemala, and then we were like in the backwoods parts of Guatemala that's not on any brochures. And uh, in the backwoods parts of Gu Guatemala, we learned in Hoyava that they celebrate everything with M80s. I mean everything. Like birthdays, anniversaries, you just had lunch. Like they celebrate Everything with M80s. These things were going off constantly. And here's, here's what's funny. There was one day we're, we're talking with, with some of our translators, and there are all these like little petite Guatemalan girls, and I'm talking to them, and an M80 goes off. I like, you know, I have this like minor like cardiac event. They don't flinch at all because they're Guatemalans and I'm an American. And when I hear a boom in America, it means something just exploded that shouldn't have exploded. And when they hear a boom, 
It means like Johnny just got a haircut and he's excited about it. I was in Guatemala. I was eating Guatemalan food. I was seeing Guatemalan things. I was hearing Guatemalan words. I was not Guatemalan. I was an American. I was a foreigner in a land. When it comes to methodology and how we treat people, particularly how we treat people who are against us, we need to remember, if you're a believer, you're not an American citizen. You're not whatever 23andMe says you are with their cute pie graph. You're not an earthling. You are a citizen of heaven. You operate by different rules. So when someone comes with a different... I'll use this because it's... I mean, you can't watch TV or turn on the radio without hearing it. When someone comes with a different political standpoint, we don't belittle them. We treat them with the grace and kindness of Jesus. When someone comes and says your Christian ways are too old-fashioned, you need to get with the times. We don't bark back in rhetoric. We show them the love of Christ. You are a citizen of heaven. Believers, if your home, if your citizenship earthly is in the U.S., the Congo, Liberia, or anywhere else on earth, that is a secondary citizenship to your first one, which is heaven. And so we have the king who wants to act in earthly ways, and we have the prophet who realizes his citizenship is in heaven. So he says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink, and then let them go to their master. It's interesting, the result is peace. Heavenly people with heavenly methods act differently. And as heavenly people with heavenly methods, we believe and act that God we, we believe and act that, that God is the one who takes vengeance, not ourselves. We let him be the executioner of justice. The wrong done to us is God's to avenge. Let's remember what Jesus said. Love your enemies. If someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. If someone says, carry my pack for a mile, carry it for two miles instead. How do we view, talk about, and treat those who are openly against the gospel? Is it yelling? Are we condescending? Or do we show the love of Christ? We need to be very careful and deliberate how we act in this extremely polarized world we live in. As you interact with others in and out of church, do they hear more of your politics, your favorite news channel, or do they hear about your Savior? Do they know you and your God love them? Do they hear that you have a moral high ground or that your God has forgiven all your sin and made you new? Do they hear your arguments or do they receive a glass of water? 
we belong to the kingdom of God, we ought to act like we believe in the Savior who got us into that kingdom and follow his rules. Wormbrand said of his time in prison in Romania, he said, we, we had an agreement with the jailers. We loved to preach the gospel, they loved to beat us. So we'd preach the gospel, they'd beat us, everyone was happy. But he also says that he knew that those jailers weren't the enemy. And so he prayed for them and he witnessed to them and he rejoiced when some of them became Christians and even fellow prisoners. As you, as you go into this, this year, and I hope you saw it today, that we have a need to read God's word, we have a need to pray to God, and we have a need to do his work. So what are you going to do to grow in one of those, whether it's reading or praying or doing? How are you going to talk with the people around you? We have communion in front of us this morning. And as we think of looking eternally, we have to think of Jesus' words on the cross as His body was being broken, as his, as his blood was being poured out, and He looked at those who literally hung him on the cross and beat him and were mocking him in the moment. And what did he pray? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. We belong to a kingdom and we got there because our Savior treated us, made us who were hostile to him into, his, into the children of the Father. He loved his enemies and made us his family. As those who are going to serve us come forward, would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, God, that you, that you reign, that you are mightier, that you are more. Lord, we praise you for the love you've given us. Help us to see you. Help us to understand what you've called us to. And thank you for the reminder in the bread and the cup that you died for us while we were still sinners. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.